Earlier this year, actor Jeffrey Owens found himself in the middle of a social media storm when he was pictured bagging groceries at a branch of Trader Joe's, a major American retailer. I've been teaching, acting, directing for 30 plus years, but got to a point where it just didn't add up enough, you know, and, and you got to do what you got to do. I, I wanted a job that I could have some flexibility, try to stay in the business. Accusations of job shaming were followed by offers of acting work for the former Cosby Show star, who worked at the store between acting jobs. Owens told Good Morning America. No job that's better than another job. It might pay better. It might have better benefits. It might look better on a resume and on paper. But actually, it's not better. Every job is worthwhile and, and valuable. Owen's work ethic resonated across the world. Though few people fully understand what it's like to have a career in show business, almost everyone understands the need to work. And while we all applaud his brilliant response to the media storm, we should also pay a little attention to his dynamic approach to work and skills. The world of work is changing. Technology is undoubtedly driving a lot of that change. But technology is nothing without people. While we're having these conversations about the development of automation and about AI entering the workplace, it's essential we don't forget that human factor. The lesson of Jeffrey Owens is that all work is valuable and that all workers should be respected. I hope what doesn't pass is this idea that people are now thinking, this rethinking about what it means to work. You know, the honor of the working person and the dignity of work. In this episode of Nevertheless, we're going to ask, how can those rethinking the future of work ensure that workers are not forgotten? My name is Mariana. I am a social entrepreneur from Peru. I'm Maggie. I'm UX designer. I'm originally from Bangladesh. The robots need us because we, we create the robots. This is Nevertheless, a podcast about learning in the modern age. Each episode, we shine a light on an issue impacting education and speak to the people creating transformative change. Supported by Pearson and hosted by me, Lee Alexander. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's a question all children are expected to think about at all stages of their education. But it's not until their mid to late teens that they're asked the question with a realistic career in mind. Decisions made at 16 or 18 can significantly affect the skills a young person enters the job market with, skills that are expected to carry them through a career for their entire life. But there is no longer such a thing as a job for life, and there may not even be such a thing as a career for life. Technology is rapidly changing the way we think about work and skills, and young people today are faced with the prospect of knowing that the job they're training for today may not exist in a few decades. Predictions vary widely, with one report from the World Economic Forum even claiming that two-thirds of children entering primary school today will end up working in industries and job types that don't even exist yet. Is education adapting quickly enough to the changing landscape of technology? Is the education world ready to face the future of work and skills? I absolutely do believe that the education industry has to adapt, has to change, has to be agile in calibrating to what the requirements are of some of these new pretty seismic shifts in the workforce and in the workplace. That's Jyoti Chopra. She's Senior Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion for Pearson Education. We spoke to her about how companies can integrate education to respond to the challenges of skill shortages in developing technology. In industry, over the last decade, 
there's been a pretty seismic move to the development of institutionalizing learning and development within the corporate environment, with many companies setting up in-house universities, establishing learning and development teams, and focusing on the development and reskilling of their own talent. Uh, One of the most powerful case studies in this area is the work that has been undertaken at AT AT&T under the leadership of Randall Stevenson, where AT&T over the last several years have made massive investments in the re-engineering, reskilling, and upskilling of their own labor force. As the company that built the telegraph infrastructure in the last century, AT&T saw themselves as a company, quote, where the future was invented. In this 1993 ad, they predicted many versions of many of the technologies we're using today. Have you ever borrowed a book from thousands of miles away? Across the country. Just ahead. Without stopping for directions. Or sent someone a fax. From the beach. You will. And the company that'll bring it to you, AT&T. In the last 10 years, it went from being a voice network to a data network, from hardware to the cloud, and from a landline business to a mobile-first enterprise. In this period of rapid growth and change, however, AT&T conducted a survey that told them that their workforce skill was not changing rapidly enough. In fact, only half of their 250,000 employees had the necessary skills the company required for this new work. What's more, 100,000 workers were in jobs having to do with hardware functions that probably wouldn't exist in the next decade. But rather than focusing their attention on recruiting new talent, they began a $1 billion multi-year effort to re-skill their workforce through collaborations with Coursera, Udacity, and leading universities. The initiative also features a career center that allows employees to identify and train for the kinds of jobs the company needs today and down the road. So today, for example, you have people at AT AT&T that have been working as project managers that are now qualified and enrolled serving the company as data scientists in the span of a very short period of time. And they've done it through a combination of strategic partnerships with academic institutions, in-house training and um, certification and through other mechanisms. Perhaps the future of work and skills is in companies taking a proactive step into their employees' educations and futures. One size does not fit all, and if young people leaving education no longer expect to find jobs for life, then employers need to find new ways to attract and retain them. One of these ways is lifelong learning. A recent study by LinkedIn of over 4,000 professionals states that 94% would stay in a company longer if it invested in their skills. Clearly, employees are keen to keep learning and developing over the working life, but for many, the time and financial burden is too great. If the lifespan of skills is shortening, then companies must be the ones to invest in human factors like retraining or upskilling or risk losing their employees to competitors who will. This is echoed by Giotti Chopra, who is concerned companies don't do enough to recognize the other human factors in the future of employment, not just the technological challenges or skill sets. If people are living longer, then retirement age will be later. Investing in people also means investing in their health, productivity, and happiness. I serve on Toyota's Diversity Advisory Board, 
And um, in recent years, Toyota announced a pretty substantial investment in research and development and established major academic institutional partnerships with Stanford University, MIT, and the University of Michigan, looking at research in around the future of mobility and robotics and artificial intelligence. And here's a, sort of another very interesting case study. If you look at Toyota, one can, looks at it through the lens of uh, one of the world's leading automobile manufacturers. But a few years from now, and where Toyota is heading, is a big focus on the future of mobility. So in recognition of the fact that people are living longer, thinking about what is it that people need in order to lead healthy, productive, agile, mobile lives. If companies invest in their human workers through things like skills retraining and, and lifetime learning opportunities, then the future for workers could be bright, even as AI and automation sets in. We're going to see multiple generations in the workforce for years to come. People are going to have multiple careers in their lifetime. And I think it's exciting and it's wonderful. And there's nothing to say that if you've been a physician or a doctor that you can't become a data scientist or um, a technologist a few years down the road if you choose to switch careers. And there, there are people that are doing that today. Across the world from Toyota, in Latin America, over 20 million women are not in employment, education, or training. It's a huge number, but one organization is making major strides in helping women change careers and their own futures. My name is Mariana. I am a social entrepreneur from Peru, and I lead Laboratoria. We are a, a nonprofit organization working to prepare young women from underserved backgrounds across Latin America to become software developers and then start a career in the tech sector. Mariana Costa-Checa is co-founder and CEO of Laboratoria, a Latin American tech organization which has trained over 800 women from disadvantaged backgrounds. Mariana's achievements have been widely recognized. She's been named by MIT as one of Peru's leading innovators and by the BBC as one of the most influential women of 2016. She's the recipient of the 2018 Change Agent AB Award, which honors outstanding women creating opportunities in technology. She even shared a panel with Barack Obama at the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, and she's a fellow of Ashoka, a nonprofit which promotes social change through innovation. They know nothing about coding. It looks so foreign, so difficult, and a few weeks into the program, they're already building their first websites. They have a, a product they can show to the world, and I think that that is something that very few things give you that. You know, they go out and they're like, look, mom, I built this up, you know, to solve this problem in my own community. So, I, I mean, one of the things I love the most about our work is that, is that our students become so confident because they learn to build technology and now they feel they have a super powerful tool, not only to get a job and start a career, but to also start solving the problems around them. Let's meet Maggie, who joined Laboratoria and began a new career as a UX designer. With help from her interpreter, Maria, Maggie spoke to us about her experience. I'm Maggie. I'm UX designer. I work in a digital agency named Houdini. I'm from Lima. and also an mom, a mom of four kids. Before joining Laboratoria, Maggie spent some time working in a bank. She got married and had four kids. At 40, Maggie faced a turning point in life. So um, my grandma, my grandma died four years ago. Van a ser su vida 
But she said that after uh, her grandma died, she died when she was 89 years old. So she started thinking and questioning the fact that maybe she's gonna, she was gonna live that long as well. And what was she gonna do for the next 40 years of her life? So Maggie joined a Laboratoria coding boot camp. At first, she struggled. When I was in the boot camp, my score, not as nothing, was not very good. Okay, I tried, I was tried, but I, but no me, no me. The person in charge of the program talked to her and explained that maybe she wasn't going to be able to graduate with the recommendation because she she wasn't getting there yet. So, the, uh, but they really liked, liked her attitude. She was really good at working in a team and talking with people. So they explained to her the opportunity of studying UX designer as a part of our pilot with, all, with also nine more students where we train them in a month in UX designer and then we find them a job. So she actually started to learn about UX and she really fell in love with it because what she did in, in her last job at the bank, she was uh, talking to a lot of clients and finding out their needs. And actually the research part that she has to do now has a lot to do with that. So she started to learn more about it and she really liked it. So that's why she decided to go for it. By getting to know Maggie as a person and having an understanding of her human qualities as well as the transferable skills, Laboratoria were able to guide Maggie towards UX design and help her find a career she now loves. Maggie hopes her experience inspires her children and others like her. Yeah, so she's saying that she's probably showing them that they need to find something that they really like and feel passionate about. And she remembers uh, that uh, her father used to tell her that she needed to find a career that will give her um, economic stability, financial stability. But now she realizes that she needs to find, like they need to find something that they like and feel passionate about it. About it. So for example, her son wants to study um, cinematography and maybe here in Lima, they, there, there isn't much of a market for it, but she's still, she's still encouraging him to study what she really likes and do what she really feels passionate about. Maybe because at 18, like we were talking about uh, a little bit before, you are too young to decide what you're what you actually want to do for the rest of your life. So she's also teaching with an example and saying that it's never late to start again and to try something new that you really like. Peru is a country currently experiencing economic growth, but women and girls are still disproportionately disadvantaged there. Laboratoria helps these women by training them for a career in coding for a small monthly fee. They're very clear that what they offer is a career in technology, not just a course. Latin America has over half a million unfilled tech jobs, and if those jobs can be filled by women who wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to enter the sector, then it's a win for diversity, for women, and for the companies who employ them. Women trained by Laboratoria have gone on to work for companies including Microsoft and Google. Mariana's vision is to train 10,000 women in the next five years. We get these amazing women that apply. Uh, we target specifically young women who, due to economic limitations, haven't been able to access quality higher education and are therefore usually either unemployed or just working in the informal sector doing low-skilled work. They join and then it's like magic. It's a, an awesome experience. They work together. 
to really learn to challenge themselves to become better, to believe in themselves. They learn coding, but then they also learn all these very important life skills. And after they're ready, we go and work with companies in need of their talent, of this type of talent, and we place them there. By working very closely with companies to help upskill women and dramatically improve their employment and economic prospects, Mariana is helping the tech industry to take responsibility for closing its own skills gap by embracing diversity and creating a level playing field for workers of all backgrounds. What we see in our work is that there's so many skill sets that if you've been born in a family with limited socioeconomic uh, resources, with difficulties, it's going to be very hard to get. You know, you're definitely at a disadvantage that someone that was born in a different environment. And I think it's not your fault that you were born there. For Mariana, the responsibility of building a future shouldn't just fall on the shoulders of these young women. So it's actually a responsibility of the entire society to help that part of the population overcome those difficulties and take them to an even playing field where they can compete at the same level. And this is a lot of our conversation with hiring companies. No, we, we, I mean... Our students have faced a lot of difficulty and that actually makes them great and makes makes them better in so many ways. In so many others, they're going to need a little bit more coaching than someone that grew up in a family where they saw their mom and dad going through formal employment, stability, and are more relatable to that, that path. For Mariana, that even playing field requires empathy on the part of companies. So I think we really need to make an effort to understand what are those circumstances that put so many of our youth at a disadvantage. And as a society, how can we work to make sure that we don't prevail that disadvantage? It really works. Former U.S. President Barack Obama called Laboratoria's success extraordinary. Their graduates' income is on average tripled compared to their previous job, a genuine success story with significant implications for the women of Peru and for the future of the local technology workforce. If you're an engineer or a coder, technology is the future. But what about the future of a different type of work? Predictions vary on how many current jobs will be taken by robots, and not all jobs are easily or economically replaceable. There will be a need for manual labor for some time yet. Those currently in a manual job may one day see the work of their hands replaced by robots, but the immediate future holds different challenges, including the very real prospect of a virtual boss. If you're a food delivery driver, your day's deliveries are shaped by an algorithm and delivered by an app. I'm originally from Bangladesh, but I've been living in London for the last 18 years, and I do food delivery. A typical day for a driver starts by clocking on via the app. An algorithm gives them their orders and delivery addresses. They then clock off via the app at the end of the day. Straightforward enough, but what if there's a problem? So if I uh, pick up a food and I want to... um a customer, and I give him the food and he says it's not the right food, he'll complain, and the company, they will uh, block you straight away, and they'll send you an email, and if you don't reply within two hours or three hours, then you are done. Morgan says the most common reason for drivers to get blocked is because of a dispute with a customer. These disputes are often an issue created by the restaurant that prepares and sells the food. That's something the drivers have no control over. For Morgan, it's hard to feel human when your boss is an algorithm. Sometimes you don't feel respected. You just go there, bring things, drop things. No one cares. So, yeah, there's no real emotion to it. You don't have any, like, they don't care about you. No one cares about it because they know, okay, if you are are done, then they will have another one. So 
machine doesn't know who you are, how good you are, you are normally, are you a good person or a bad person? The machine doesn't know how, who I am. Morgan feels he has little or no control over his work. When things go wrong, he says it's difficult to have his point of view heard. He believes going to work would dramatically improve if his employers made it easier for workers to simply have a conversation with a human rather than a machine. If I have the opportunity to talk to someone and say like more opportunities, say like, okay, I have done this, I have said that, say like other real companies do, people, managers or bosses, so I, they, they will understand, okay, this happened, but next time don't do this. You know, you will give the disciplinary action or something instead of blocking because of what happened when people start working uh, with this job, they leave other job as well. So they have only this job. So you, someone you, you sucked or you blocked, then they're in a difficult position when people have family and it is uh, really expensive and hard to live in London. Global Innovation Foundation Nesta recently published a blog post by a warehouse worker from Yorkshire, England, who takes his orders from an AI over a headset. The worker, who published under the pseudonym Zach, wrote, quote, It tells me which slots to go to and how many cases to pick. You talk back to it and tell it how many cases you have taken, and then say OK, and then it sends you to the next slot. But rather than resent being supervised by a machine, he's chosen to embrace the positives, saying he doesn't mind being told what to do by the headset, saying, quote, if it was a human on my back constantly barking orders at me, I would probably end up arguing and losing my job as I don't like being bossed about, end quote. Zach's testimony is part of Nesta's Common Futures blog, edited by Tom Saunders, a principal researcher in the inclusive innovation team at Nesta. Tom specializes in the role of technology and inequality. We asked him if the future of work really is a positive one. There's no such thing as the future we created. And whenever you have statements out in public about the future of work, they're very definitive statements, you know. AI is going to do X, it's, it's going to create X number of jobs, or it's going to destroy X number of jobs. And neither of those statements are true to any degree. You know, it's the hope, right, of the person that's saying, I want this to happen, is really what they're saying. Stories about the future can impact the present. And the problem is they are often told by tech companies and presented as foregone conclusions that policymakers and all of us are just going to have to get used to. I think what needs acknowledging is that there are a whole range of possible things that could happen. And we need to think about those different things and involve a much more diverse group of people in that discussion rather than just kind of rely on the statements of startups, unions, and others. You know, it, has, it has to be more diverse than that. Tom believes that the future of work needs to be led by conversations with all workers, not just the decision makers at the top. So you may have some panel or report about the future of work, and nine times out of ten, the glaring omission is where are the voices of workers, you know, and that can be highly skilled workers or that can be cleaners. I think the challenge is you can have all these debates about what AI and robots, you know, things will or won't do to the future of work, but I think for me the key issue is you need a broader range of people having those discussions about what we want and then and then how do you work towards that more democratic vision of the future. By involving all workers in the conversation about technology, you can fully understand the impact of automation and AI on the culture that ultimately has to accept it. Predictions of robots taking all the jobs aren't, as Tom points out, based in fact. We have no facts about the future, and Tom argues that civil society will step in when automation goes too far. 
That's a theory that was recently tested when trillion-dollar retailer Amazon patented a new device to protect warehouse workers while operating a robotic arm that picked goods from shelves for dispatch. Accompanying illustrations of the device, which would enable workers to enter areas of the warehouse currently unsafe because of high-speed drones and robots, looked no more or less like a cage. The image of putting human workers in cages is not good for any company, but for Amazon, a corporation beleaguered by accusations of exploitative working conditions, it was a PR nightmare. While the patent was filed in 2016, the story didn't break until 2018 when details of the cage were included in a paper by AI ethics researchers Kate Crawford and Vladen Jolin. The authors described the cage as dystopian, saying it, quote, represents an extraordinary illustration of worker alienation, a stark moment in the relationship between humans and machines. But the cage was never implemented, and thanks to the worldwide media coverage and social media backlash, it now stands as a cautionary tale to industry, a clear warning that there is a tipping point. The message here is that those developing technology for the workplace need to start including different voices and perspectives. In Portugal, 17-year-old Antonio is training at a technical college to become a robotics engineer and coder. I want like to work on my computer to create the programs we need to, to program our robot. I like a lot of cars and robots since I was a kid, so I don't know, it's a personal thing. That's why I, I came to this school to learn specific things about the things I liked. And I, I thought uh, I will be good in my future. Antonio feels positive about his own future because he's learning about something he already enjoys. He plans to use his passion for engineering and robotics to help other people. His vision of an automated future is a positive one because he's practical about the role of AI. I think we as a person and the robots, we have to cooperate because... The robots need us because we we create the robots and we program the robots. They do what we want. They are just hardware brains and software brains. It's easy to imagine a future where the hardware brains and software brains take over, but that can only happen if we let it. The future is in the hands of young developers like Antonio. We asked Antonio what motivates him, helping people or money. His response speaks to the sort of work ethic and pride that we heard in Jeffrey Owen's story at the beginning of this episode. I prefer doing what I like, what is good, and thinking about the other persons to the better future, not being like the mean hacker or something. I want to help the society growing and being better, make better things, not be by the, the richness. Nevertheless, is a Story Things production. Series producer is Renee Richardson. Executive producers are Nathan Martin and Anjali Ramachandran. This episode was produced and written by Tracy King. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer and Michael Simonelli. Supported by Pearson and presented by me, Lee Alexander. More episodes plus full transcripts and further reading can be found on our website, neverthelesspodcast.com. Subscribe for free and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This week's unsung hero is Juliana Rotik, founder of Ushahidi, which creates open source tools for crisis information.